0: This is the CSIS Careers and Development Series, and with me today is Rick Ehrenreich, that's him, the bald guy, and uh, Jennifer Mills, next to him, and they're both with INR, at the State Department, which is the Intelligence and Research, research uh, Bureau uh, within the State Department. That That's sort of the, the brains of the State Department. They do the research and analysis and, and all those sorts of things, and... Uh, it's an interesting part of state and that, that people don't hear about a whole lot. Rick has spent most of his career, almost all of your career in INR and Jennifer's her starting career in INR and so they're going to talk a little bit about uh, foreign, foreign affairs and how it relates to AID and then a little bit about um, uh, the foreign service and civil service and careers in in the foreign affairs area. So with that, Rick, turn it over to you.
1: Sure, thanks a lot, Bill. Um, it's kind of an interesting uh, question because uh, we work at INR, uh, Bureau of Intelligence and Research the State Department. And you're sort of thinking, so uh, where does this come in with careers and development? And I thought about it a little bit, and it sort of does. Um, partly because how I first got to know Bill Garblink, was back a very long time ago, uh, probably, yeah, a couple of years ago, two or three years ago, during the Bush one administration, I think. And um, uh, it was during, it was a very, very interesting time for international relations for development and such. And what we had at that time was kind of a big shift, um, uh, both in the way USAID was operating, in the way the world was operating. And uh, what we saw was sort of the, the, the end of the Cold War uh, and, the, and also sort of a new way of dealing with disasters. Um, truth be told, Bill was never much of a development kind of guy, even though he spent his career with USAID, uh, but he was disaster, a disaster guy with uh, Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance, part of AID. And, um, one of the things that was going on during that period was um, the they had done a pretty good job of sort of figuring out when there's going to be a famine uh, because of various uh, mechanisms like the, uh, the famine early warning system that was put in place around that time. They could sort of anticipate natural disasters coming. But one of the things that couldn't be anticipated uh, or could not be anticipated with the tools that USAID had at the time were things like political disasters. Uh, In the 80s, you'd have have a political disaster in a place like Ethiopia, which would lead to the Ethiopian famine. But at the time, Ethiopia was a Stalinist state, completely closed off to most of the rest of the world, and uh, our ability to affect uh, or prevent that famine was limited. Just a couple of years later, a few years later, as the Cold War wound down, a lot of places opened up. But there was still the problem of um, of disasters stemming from political, military situations that were not in the area of expertise of most of USAID, certainly at that time. And um, that's sort of where we came in, in the sense that we were part of Bureau of Intelligence and Research, the State Department, and just kind of informally we interacted with uh, with USAID, and um, and part of it was uh, part of it was just the fact that aid and state were in the same building, or most of aid and most of state were in that same big building down where the State Department is now, and. Um, It was a very, very good way to have sort of cross-fertilization of talents. Particularly, you know, I work on African Affairs, we work on African Affairs. And, um, you know, you'd walk down the hall and, in a sense, it was kind of a different time because most most people's doors were open. You know, our doors these days are pretty much locked in INR. And uh, you guys have probably mostly been to the Ronald Reagan building where everything is closed and locked and you have these very sterile corridors. State, at that time, was a much more open place. A lot of doors were open. People would interact, you know, stick their heads in the door, have coffee. We'd invite you guys to our meetings. They'd invite us to their meetings. We'd all have sort of an informal way of of knowing what's going on and sharing it with each other. Um, And it was was particularly... um, We had a pretty close relationship, I think... uh, I think in the early, mid-90s until said left the building in about 97. And um, I, think the, I think that um, uh, what we have done since, um, again, INR's relations, INR Africa's relations with aid are just not what they were back then because the informality of it is gone. But um, we still get together with USAID people from time to time, Uh, you know, usually go down to their offices. But it's a little, it's a lot more constrained and constricted, the sort of like informal uh, cross-fertilization that went on considerably isn't there. Um, And um, I, uh, they have this story about this building on the MIT campus called Building 20, where like, you know, multiple Nobel Prizes were. Were uh, were won or inventions were made, uh, you know the first series hacking was done there. It was this this huge building, big sprawling wooden thing, where everybody interacted and a lot of creative thought came out of it. Now I do not want to put the State Department in that category, at all, but uh, there was a lot more sharing uh, when 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 Usaid was there. Um, one of the things that has happened in more recent years, um, INR, um, particularly a, a, a section of INR called the Office of uh, Geography and, um, um, excuse me, the Office of uh, Geography and Global Issues, um, uh, sort of reached out with more of a formal attempt to interact with USAID and NGOs. And uh, they have established, uh, gradually established, but it's been running pretty well for several years now, what they call the Humanitarian Information Unit. And that includes some folks from, from state, folks from aid, folks from uh, NGA, which is the National Geospatial Agency, which does the satellite photography and such like that. And the idea is to put, uh, have a, like a clearinghouse of information, that aid and NGOs would be uh, able to, to access fairly easily. Um, it's, it's a little more formal, uh, but I think it generally works fairly well. And there's some, there's some old uh, OFDA alumni uh, that are still working there. And, um, and I think um, uh, our office, the, the Office of Analysis for Africa, is mainly we focus on Africa. And we focus on Africa in all of its uh, uh, in all of its permutations—economic, uh, political, military, social, whatever comes up, whatever seems interesting and relevant at the time—we'll deal with it. Um, and uh, that made it uh, a very. From time to time, we interacted a lot with aid. We do so a little less now. We deal with the Office of uh, Population, Refugees, and Migration part of State which is, again, not development, more disaster relief, but, um, and, and some of the other offices. But, uh, but we are very geographically focused. Um, I came there to, uh, to INR many years ago, and I could probably tell my stories about getting a job there. Um, some of it might be relevant, but I think uh, Jenny Mills who just started a couple of months ago, uh, her experience in getting a job uh, in INR is a lot more relevant than mine. And um, even where mine is relevant, if I sort of say back when I was looking at it, it, it would certainly, be, it certainly sound irrelevant. So if Jenny wants to go and talk about her end of things,
2: thanks. Thanks, Rick. Um, So I graduated from the Joan B. Crock School of Peace Studies in 2010, um, and the philosophy of the school was to take development, conflict resolution, human rights, um, and human security and bring them together instead of looking at them in silos, see the overlapping nature of them. And so when I graduated, I automatically went out into the NGO world thinking that this was the right place um, for me, that maybe I would be able to look at all of these uh, different topics and actually bring them together. So I went out into the NGO world, worked for a number of human rights organizations, peace building organizations, uh, but still realized that they were operating very much in these silos. and so I was speaking with a number of my mentors, and several of them said, well, have you ever thought about working for the U.S. government? Um, which I responded, no. Uh, that's I've always been a non-governmental person. Um, so someone mentioned um, the Presidential Management Fellowship Program, which is one of three Pathways programs that's offered um, – for the executive branch under the Office of Personnel Management. And uh, someone mentioned that it was this great leadership program that at the end of a two-year fellowship, you're offered a job. Um, And so I applied. I think the application was due two weeks later, and I hopped on board and went through a rigorous process um, of lots of tests and putting myself out there, networking. I moved to D.C. on multiple occasions just to network, um, and finally landed a position at Department of State at the Bureau for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor. I spent two years off and on in DRL. Um, Part of the PMF program is you get to do two development assignments, and this is one of the most unique parts of this program is they are wanting to build the next generation of leaders in our government and uh, they want individuals to be able to taste the very different uh, tools, mechanisms, interests, equities of multiple different either agencies within the executive branch or even within your own uh, agency. So for me, I did a rotation out to Embassy Bangui in Central African Republic, a nice little war zone, um, and had a very unique opportunity to be the only pole econ officer out there with an embassy of maybe four staff um, during a very turbulent time in Central African Republic's history. Um, And then finally, I did my second rotation over at Intel and Research. And um, that was a three three month rotation. At the end of my fellowship, and it was the first time I really felt like I was able to step back and take development, conflict resolution, human rights, justice, all of the different topics, and really flip that and look at that. Look at sorry conflicts and African politics through all of these lenses at the same time. So it was very unique opportunity to look at the developing world, specifically sub-Saharan Africa, through um, a multifaceted, holistic lens, and it's it's been a very interesting adventure. Um, To to do this type of work and to be able to interact with all of the various different executive agencies, which is INR is a bit unique in being a part of the intel community, but also being a part of the policy world. Um, so, so that's kind of my story. Um, the Presidential Management Fellowship program. I ended it and converted over to INR in August. Uh, so that's one of the biggest benefits of the program is that once you complete it, you can just move straight over into a full time position. Thank you. Uh,
0: great. Uh, just a comment. A question for both of you. In terms of inter- you, uh, with through INR, you interact with. Uh, other parts of the U.S. government, the State Department. How about the United Nations? Do you interact at all with those, those folks?
1: Not normally. Um, you know, we'll occasionally have uh, folks like the U.N. group of experts, which will come to D.C., and, you know, sometimes we know these guys personally. Um, we don't. We'll occasionally do briefings um, if U.S. U.N. wants us to do, mm-hmm. and they'll ask us to come to New York to do a briefing, um, occasionally, a UN person, an SRSG, or uh, will, will come through and talk about their issues. Mm-hmm. But we don't have, as far as I can tell or recall, I don't think we have much direct um, sort of day-to-day interaction. It's sort of uh, uh, yeah, we don't we don't interact with them day-to-day. It's sort of things come up, and we'll mm-hmm. talk to them.
2: I think all I would add is we do have U.S. military advisors that sometimes could be embedded in the peacekeeping operations overseas. And so, oftentimes, before they head out, we'll do a briefing, a country briefing, on that specific um, region that they're going into. And then, also for countries, for example, like Central African Republic, where Uh, We may have very limited amount of information coming in just because it's extremely isolated and it is a war zone. We're very reliant on um, what the UN reports. So I am constantly reaching out to my UN partners out in a car to ask them what's going on in the hinterlands.
0: Interesting. If you have any thoughts or questions, please, uh, now we'll, we'll turn it over to you guys. Uh, please uh, state who you are and where you're from uh, when, when you have a question.
2: Hi, I'm Caroline Lamford. I work here at CSIS. Um, sorry, I still have my code on. I actually forgot. But, um, so um, I actually, this is probably for um, Frederick. Have you ever um, worked during a presidential transition and was it like working in a government during a presidential transition? And how does that affect um, the things that you're expected to do, the policies that you're expected to enact? Since you are part of the government, there is always some, unfortunately, politics involved in what you expect to change working in the State Department going forward.
1: Thanks. Um, Frankly, in current circumstances, I don't really know how to answer that question. I can only give you examples from the past. Um, I have worked in several administrations, um, Republican to Republican, Republican to Democrat, Democrat to Republican, et cetera. Um, And I think that one of the things that we have always seen in the past is you kind of know who the people are coming in. Um, There's a certain track record you might have worked with them in a previous administration. They've written things. You've seen them at events like CSIS. Um, and you, you kind of know who the new crew is. Um, sometimes you've worked with them before. And um, I think that what's unusual right now, at least in the Africa side of things, and I think in general in the state, we really don't know who, I personally don't know who, the new crew is, so it'll be it'll be a learning experience. And uh, ask me in a few months, and maybe I'll have a better answer for you. But um, but uh, we're just trying <laughs> to figure out what's going on. I think the the mantra that goes that that's going around, and it kind of is a mantra. It's like be professional, be professional, be professional. And um, and that's kind of what we're that's kind of what we're trying to do now. And um, and uh, we'll we'll see what happens.
0: guys doing any uh, briefing papers or, or transition teams or anything like that?
1: Yeah. Um, we're, we're working on a few. I think we actually, um, uh, some folks pulled together a meeting you know, just a few weeks ago on, on transition papers and what various assistant secretaries of State for Africa and Africa directors at the uh, National Security Council and National Intelligence Officers what they all sort of found um, interesting and relevant. And I don't think it would be, you know, spilling the beans to basically say it's like, you know, don't treat us like idiots. We actually know this stuff. Um, tell us what we don't know. Don't give us long papers. Um, you know, so don't don't treat us like children because we actually have a pretty good background on this stuff. Um, don't give us tons of stuff to read because we're really, really busy. Um, but if there's things that, we, that have come up in the last little bit of time or something that we should really know, uh, let us know it. And so we're trying to sort of uh, conceive of a couple of papers that, uh, that might answer that question, a couple of short papers that might answer that question or those questions. Um, I think one of the things that I've learned in this job and in, in a certain sense is that less is more. Um, You don't want to sort of, uh, you don't want to bury people with paper because busy people don't have the time to deal with it. Uh, Very often, you know, just handing them a document that says says what they need to know at the time they need to know it's useful, you know, just a a few words of a quick oral briefing and why you think that way is very useful. Sometimes writing something a little more comprehensive is, is very worthwhile, but I find it most worthwhile for myself to sort of like get my thoughts down, get it together, and and to sort of help me understand it. And, and sometimes other people find it very useful. Uh, actually, I remember this is going back a ways, but uh, this is sort of a, a USAID interaction. I remember um, I wrote a paper not long after the Rwandan genocide, and it was just talking about what, how Rwanda would be acting after the genocide. This was probably August of '94, and they were sort of, you know, you had these RPF guys. They took over, and they were like, um, they were really proud of themselves because they had, they had won this war. On the other hand, they were really nervous because they had just, they had just seen the genocide. The genocide just happened in their country. And I sort of wrote a paper about it. I, mean, I remember a, a USAID guy sort of came up to me in the hall and just like had a a big smile on his face, and he shook my hand and he goes, "You nailed it." And um, and that's just sometimes you write a paper that nails it. And um, um, but mostly it's just like it's just answering the answering the mail, uh, letting people know uh, briefly, succinctly. Um, what's going on, what they should know. Do you have anything to add on that?
2: The only thing I would add is one of the reasons why I truly uh, enjoy working at INR is one of their slogans or the slogan is speaking truth to power. Um, And I think this is very relevant because we even in INR, we have dissenting papers. If there is something that we don't agree with it's going around the government will actually write a paper saying actually R thinks X, Y, and Z because of this evidence. Um, and so I think that's at least my approach personally to this transition is that our job at the end of the day is to speak truth to power and that's what we have to continue to do.
1: And I will say that in the past we've been backed up by our superiors um, you know, at the assistant secretary level. And there's sort of a culture at state to sort of, um, you know, they might disagree with us and roll, our, roll their eyes, but they read it, they pay attention to it, and they take it on board um, even if they don't, even if they end up following a different uh, policy.
2: Uh, Joanna Chan, A S Fellow, um, last year I spent a year as the State Department with the International Organization Affairs Bureau. And My question is, um, how do INO apply data in particular, open data from all the NGO, from all the different UN organizations, put together in order to inform decision making, policy making? Thank you.
1: I think our attitude, we call ourselves all source analysts. So um, we, we have access to a lot of data, and we try to use all the data, and we use it in different ways. Sometimes, it's, um, uh, sometimes it is, uh, uh, how would you say, um, um, in the form of, of charts, in the form of matrices, in the form of... Uh, it's how you organize it. Sometimes it's in written form, sometimes it's in graphical form, sometimes it's in charts. Uh I'd say um it's mostly uh what you it's it's the the facts that you bring in and then your interpretation of the facts. Just lining up the data and seeing what it says to you. Uh I mean that's sort of the the, the story of analysis is the facts are one thing, and then when you look at all the facts and you come up with something that um, you can get by putting various facts together, that one that one factoid or one small group of factoids will not tell you, it actually tells you what the story might be. And um, so, anyway, we use we use all sources is the is the quick answer. Anything yet? Hi, I'm Heather. I'm an intern at USAID. Um, You talked about, I'm sorry, Jennifer, you talked about being a um, presidential management fellow in um,
2: Pathways Internships. Will you talk about other hiring mechanisms at State? So I know there's a variety of different um, fellowships uh, that you can, like the Bourne Fellowship, and unfortunately I'm not going to be able to speak to many of these um, just because I haven't really been involved in it. Um, I can say specifically with the Presidential Management Fellowship Program that uh, this is an outlier or a very unique uh, set of the fellowships because I don't believe any of the other ones have the hiring authority at the end of it. Um, so most born fellows, uh, et cetera, et cetera, they might have a competitive advantage, but they're not assured a job at the end of it. And as I said, another thing is is these rotations, these development assignments. None of the other fellowships or internships uh, have that opportunity to to do that. So sorry, I know that probably doesn't answer your question, um, but I would definitely give two thumbs up to the PMF program. So if you're going to do one, do that one.
1: I just might add a little bit. Um, I have to say, in general, our office um, does not generally go after PMFs. Um, very often, uh, PMFs are are early in their career and um, they're not really sure what they want to do. and. Uh, We've had some experiences where PMFs have come in, done a good job for a while, and then you know, left fairly suddenly to do something else. Uh, so I would say in our office there has been something of a prejudice to um, maybe hire somebody that's been around long enough, A, to get some experience, but more importantly, to uh, get a sense of that this is the kind of job they really want to do. Um, Jenny was interested because she was just rotating through with us as, uh, as a DRL PMF, uh, Democracy, Human Rights and Labor PMF, and um, she nailed the job. She was really good at it, and she really liked it. And we had a slot, so everything just sort of came together. Um, but if she had applied to us as a PMF a couple of years before, whenever it was that she was looking, um, we probably just weren't in the market. Um, so, um, that's just a, a general comment on, on, on PMFs, uh, but that said, much of INR um, does, uh, does love PMFs and brings them in. So, um, if you get into INR uh, via a PMF program uh, and uh, then you talk us into it, we'd be uh, happy to have you. Good morning. Uh, I'm Jesse Dan, and I'm a business strategist, and this question is about government accountability, I guess, and how would you uh, measure your own performance within your office, or how do you measure it? That's a good question. That's a really good question, um, and that's something that I don't think I have a really clear answer to. Uh, we do try to have, like, metrics about how many, how many papers you write, and um, we have certain minimums for that sort of thing, but as i was saying alive is not being effective is not necessarily quantity you know very often it's quality it's 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 the right word to the right person at the right time that communicates a thought and um it's something that might not you know much of what i do does not sort of show up on any sort of record um i think uh you know, obviously, if you write something that nails it, that, um, that uh, tells people what they need to know, when they need to know it, um, goes beyond the conventional wisdom, um, that's, that's success. But then again, how do you measure that? It's, it's hard to, a lot of the stuff is hard to measure um we're generally we're generally well regarded by um by the people that we support uh mostly the state africa bureau but also other bureaus including sometimes international organizations sometimes drl um, and uh and i think that means something but again it's very hard to quantify so i think i think it's just one of those it's one of those uh uh, I guess the answer is you know it when you see it, but um, it's, it's, you know, there are certain minimal, minimum uh, uh, metrics, but, you know, you can make all the metrics and still be a crappy analyst. Uh, or you can make very few of the metrics or barely make the metrics and just be outstanding. So it's, it's one of those things that we haven't quite social science and society is kind of hard to measure. Uh, and uh, I think on this one, um, it's it's been difficult to measure. We have our, our evaluations, and we, you know, you did excellent or outstanding or fully successful or whatever it is, not successful. Um, and, um, but that's very imprecise. Yeah, and you might have a, a sort of written essay to sort of explain how the person does. And it's like, okay, it might be a nice essay, it might say what they do, but it's not It's not hard data. So I guess the answer is, I, I, it's, it's, it's a disappointing answer.
0: I, I would just add, from, from uh, having been in different bureaus in the State Department and AID, but interact with With Rick and and other folks at INR in a a sense it's a relatively small world when you're working on Africa and if you've been around for a few years you get to know the folks in INR whether you're an aid or I was in the Africa Bureau at State and and PRM uh, and then various places in AID and it comes in, you you learn very quickly who the experts are in in the area you're working and you go to these guys when, when there's special issues or you have meetings, the G7 the G20 come up these are the folks you go to for for just a, a background briefing or to understand what's going on uh, in a more in-depth way than you get with a few cables you read on it um, uh, during the course of a week or so. So it's kind of nice to have a resource there that you, you can go to and get very sound and in-depth explanations of what's going on in a given country or what's happening with the presidential election in the Congo and, and talk about the various uh, candidates who may or may not actually get a chance to run against Kabila in, in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And so INR plays a very important role to the, the rest of the U.S. government in the foreign affairs area, and particularly in and state, uh, where you can go to get, get really sound analysis. And it's interesting, um, I think INR is the only part of the State Department that really can offer a dissenting opinion of a, of a very strong-willed ambassador um, who has a very... Focused way of wanting to deal with the country, uh, INR is the part that can, can disagree with the, the, the approach that our ambassadors taking and lay it out and for people to see. Because uh, just the nature of the State Department and an embassy, you don't disagree with your ambassador very often. Um, not and I work for him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. And so INR plays a very important role as well as offering alternative opinions to what may be the, the standard practice in an embassy. Uh, so they, the, 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 they play a very unique role. It's kind of an important place.
1: Just quick to follow up on that. Um, we, we do not do the policy. We are, uh, we can sort of call ourselves, uh, we're policy relevant, but we're not policy prescriptive. And um, so we, we, we stay away from the policy per se, but we want to give people information analysis that will support the policy. Um, It is interesting in other parts of the intelligence community, there has been this effort for the last couple of years, last several years, to do opportunity analysis, which is basically to give policy suggestions. And uh, we in INR think that's really stupid, Uh, stupid for two reasons. One is um, a lot of the policymakers are pretty smart people who have been thinking about this stuff. And so I would say that, you know, when I'm on my game, Maybe once every year or two I'll come up with something that's a really good idea that somebody hasn't thought of yet. You know, once every year or two at best. Um, and, uh, and I think that's better than most. Um, but the other thing is, is when you start writing for policymakers, when you start putting down this is what I think our policy should be, I think intellectually... You kind of corrupt yourself because you start rooting for the outcome that you want based on your policy suggestion. And I think that to do our jobs well, we should sort of be rooting for nothing. We should we, we should be rooting for the right answer, so that even if um, you know, even if uh, it is doom and gloom, it's like, well, I nailed that one. I got that one right. Uh, so the world's gone to hell but it's like I called it Um, you can die with a smile on your face I suppose Um, I'll stop now
2: hi I'm Jess Epstein I'm a triple S fellow at USAID and also a social scientist so I find myself wondering about the kinds of data you're drawing on in the analyses you're doing and I was hoping you could speak to the kinds of intelligence that 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 are the inputs for your work
1: I'm sorry that's classified no um, uh, what we do is, um, um, Jenny can, can add on, what we do is we just try to get information wherever we can. We talk to people. Um, we, we read the cables that, that Bill writes from, from DRC or wherever. We read the intelligence um, yeah. from all sources, uh, from all the agencies. We, um, we read the press. Um, we we read articles, um, we read blogs, um, we read Twitter links. Um, just we we read. Uh, we talk to people. Uh, we talk to people who are on the scenes. As I say, I, I we also get out there from time to time. I worked uh, I worked for for Bill for a couple of times, a couple mm-hmm. of different times, um, about six weeks apiece. Uh, when he was ambassador out in uh, in uh, DRC, uh, Jenny was spent four months in the Central African Republic, and um, so we we you know next week the African Studies Association is going to be in town, and I we plan to spend a good chunk of time sort of hitting some of the sessions and chatting to old friends and meeting new people and trying to figure out what they know. Uh, so it's. Um, it's just uh some people are more systematic about it people do it differently you know we have some people that you know they sit at their desk and they read everything absolutely everything but they don't talk to people and they don't like to do as many TDYs overseas you have other people that like to do a lot of TDYs and um and might not be as focused on the reading you have some people that do do it all um it's just uh, there, there's a little bit of room in our office for different ways of sort of doing the job. But as long as you, um, as long as you have good, uh, as long as you're knowledgeable, as long as you're insightful, uh, as long as you can contribute, that's, that's what we look for. I hope that answers the question.
2: Hi, my name is Pia Nunez. I am a student of a joint program between Georgetown Law and the Graduate Institute of Geneva. I think my question would be more for, for Jennifer. You've already talked about this, but so for someone interested in working on international development, how do you start looking for something, and how do you filter between the so many different options, between international organizations, NGOs, uh, state like governments, especially for me that I'm clearly not from the U.S.? That's a good question. Um, I mean, I I think that it's it's obviously something personally you're gonna have to kind of figure out where you want to be. I mean, the advantages of being at maybe a non-governmental organization is that you're that outside accountability mechanism for the government, which is one of the reasons why I didn't want to work within the government is I, I always view myself as an advocate and I wasn't sure what that looked like when you were actually a US government employee. Um, but then as I went over to Department of State, I found several bureaus where I could still be an advocate in sense even internally at Democracy, Human Rights and Labor We represent very, I don't want to say narrow equities, but very specific equities, making sure that our foreign policy has human rights at the core of it, Um, and good governance principles, which is not always what we view as our traditional national interest, Um, but we represent the values of our country Um, So that was a wonderful place to work, and I felt like I was able to continue to uh, use my background in international development, security, human rights. Those principles were integrated into that position. And as I said before, with with INR, um, I was able to bring my knowledge and background into my analysis. So, I mean, when navigating the waters of, of whether or not you you go to an NGO or you go to a think tank or um, you become an academic or whatever else um, I think for me it's it's just being able to identify what are those core values and principles and what type of angle do you want to come at it from um, I mean in addition to answering some also going back to another question on on what sources we use um, think tanks uh, I, I meet with individuals that work at think tanks and they come at uh, these issues from a very different perspective. So each one of them, NGOs, think tanks, academics, all of these individuals we use in our analysis in INR. So they all have value. So that's, my advice is probably to try a few things. I worked in the NGO world as a consultant as well as um, a full-time employee. I loved it. I would do it again. Um, and as I said, I, I never thought I'd be working for the U.S. government. Um, but it has been, yes, another plug I would say is, working for the U.S., no matter what position you have, um, you are likely going to be interacting with the U.S. government. They are going to be an audience. They are going to be an entity you're pushing. In some way, you're going to interact with them. So being able to be on the inside, and understanding how policymakers think, what uh, words are triggers, um, how to kind of, I don't want to say pull the strings, but how to be able to communicate to them in an effective way. I cannot say that I had that knowledge before working for the US government. Um, so I highly recommend, if you've got the chance, do an internship try to get some experience with U.S. government or another government just to be able to understand the complexity, the opaqueness, the way in which to kind of awake the higher arc is what I would say. Because these policymakers, as Rick mentioned, they're very, very busy. Um, And so I know the ENOUGH project just made this two-page document on how sanctions can be effective overseas. And uh, I sent them an email and said, thank you for making it two pages. Like, people are actually going to read this versus a 50-page document that we might get through the executive summary. It's just there's very limited time. So I think that getting that perspective is very, very helpful.
0: And just to add, I think as well, um, you have the the U.S. government, you have the private sector, you have the United Nations, you have NGOs you're around the business, you, you, people move back and forth among these various options all the time. Uh, I've worked, Now I work for an NGO, I retired from the government, I've worked in state and aid, uh, I was here at CSIS for, for a number of years. So people move around and uh, I think, which is very good, uh, it's cross fertilization and you get to, to engage at all different, from different perspectives. Uh, and and diff- for, uh, to, with different people, um, so it's 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 really good to work in all different sorts of uh, the elements of foreign affairs. Uh, on
1: yeah, I uh, yeah I would I would just uh, uh, add on to that, and I think you mentioned something like that similar uh, a little earlier, and that is the longer you're in this field. The more you get to know the other people in the field, and the more they get to know you, and if you do a good job, that you get they get to know you and like you and respect you, and um, so if you're in the field for a while, um, you you uh, you kind of establish yourself. Just to... hi, my name is Hannah. I'm with the
2: Genocide Prevention Center at George Mason. Uh, My question is for you, Jennifer, um, specifically from your experience working in CAR. Um, Do you think there's an action
1: or actions that the U.S. government could have taken in relation to conflict prevention rather than conflict response that would have made a difference at the time?
2: that's a really good question and last week i think i went to a workshop on atrocity prevention specifically looking at it in the broad context and whether or not we're actually going to have an atrocity prevention board in the next four years or so um but then also flipping it specifically on the car context i mean what i'll say is you know, being in CAR, I, I actually grew up on a very small island in, in Africa called Comoros and went through six attempted coups, a seventh successful one, and thought that this was one of the most complicated little countries in the world and decided to go out to CAR because I thought that it would be even more interesting. When I got on the ground, I realized that it's, it's a, an extremely complicated conflict, maybe the most complex that I've ever scene um, and coming back from my, coming back to my conflict analysis and resolution I mapped out all of the different com- conflict dynamics and realized it was one that you know you almost like a web you, you pull one string trying to solve the problem and it affects the rest of this web of, of relationships with the conflict dynamics and it usually exacerbates or even destroys another sector so in, in a roundabout way, sorry. Um, I think that our policy in CAR has been very effective. Um, and I think that one of the hard things about conflict prevention, atrocity prevention, is it's very, very difficult to measure. You're measuring something that hasn't happened. And I mean, I think that CAR getting through an election, which I can say, to be very honest, was a very difficult thing to do and being on the ground at the embassy during September 2015 when things started to kind of unravel and we started seeing what we saw back in 2012, these ex these armed groups moving to Bangui to take it over, we reacted very differently in that circumstance than we did a few years ago. So we are learning lessons and we are addressing things different and I think that You know, maybe our policy back in 2011, 2012, I know a lot of people have argued that we were too late. We maybe started implementing better policies, looking at more long-term solution, rather than just that reactive nature. And we may have made some, I don't want to say mistakes, we made calls that didn't necessarily have the outcomes we wanted. But we have learned a lot from it. And now that our embassy has reopened there, we didn't close up shop in September 2015. We considered it. And the EU pulled out and other missions did, but the U.S. stayed. And some of that was learning lessons from the years in the past. So I, I think that with CAR, we continue to look. If you all were looking at the, the donors conference that just happened uh, last week, we um, are providing the largest amount of money. Um, so I think we are learning. We are learning that Central African Republic though, there's not great US interest there, natural US interest there. Um, this atrocity prevention angle, conflict prevention, understanding the regional impact of a country like CAR being consistently in crisis, is something that the U.S. government should be paying attention to and putting a lot of interest and policy and decision, good decision-making into it.
1: Let me just follow up on that. Sort of the the idea of unintended consequences had nothing to do with the Central African Republic, but as Jenny was talking, I was thinking of the case of Libya a few years ago. We wanted to prevent a genocide in Libya. Uh, There were reports that Gaddafi was going to be moving on Benghazi in force, uh, threatening to to kill every man, woman, and child in the area. And that was the the logic for our intervention, our our Western intervention that was blessed by the UN. And um, so we know that uh, our intervention in Libya hasn't gone so well. It has basically created a tremendously unstable state. Qaddafi's um, gone, but it's, he's been replaced by a fairly chaotic situation. Um, so we we know what happened because of our intervention. Uh, what we don't know is what didn't happen because of our intervention. You know, would Qaddafi have destabilized the place and then gone on ruling more or less like he would have? Would he have gone and wiped out everybody in Benghazi and had, you know, a, a genocide on our hands? Uh, so it is one of those things that it's very difficult to sort of, um, you know, know when you've succeeded. You know when you failed in, in retrospect. But uh, sometimes, uh, sometimes your success is based on what what didn't happen.
2: of tools or methodology or theory you use to analyze that kind of relationships
1: well I'm a I'm a conflict uh, resolution kind of guy uh, my, so I, th- I think in terms of conflict resolution I think in terms of, I mean, of history um, and what I mean by history is um, the idea of Of history as opposed to political science is in history you basically gather all the data. All the data you can. Stare at the data and then try to make sense of the data you have. Uh, In political science you, you look at the various models that are out there and then apply the models to the data. And so I would say I kind of do both. I think my my prejudice is history, so what I tend to do is try to like look at all the angles. But then um, I studied a fair amount of political science and uh, and comparative, and um, and uh, conflict resolution, and so I tend to sort of bring some of those models in as as appropriate. But it's not a, it's nothing fixed for me. Um, I suppose if I have a a mental image of how I operate as I basically think of uh, little vectors in my head, little arrows put you know, with, with, with uh, direction and force, pushing different directions. And I look at all the data, and I sort of see how they might make the various arrows, what directions and how strong the arrows are. And this is all going on in my head, and then, I, um, and then you just sort of add up the arrows and uh, sort of see what general direction you might be coming up with. Um, That's kind of a a rough... It's it's very hard to sort of explain how you think, uh, but that's... And and I think other people do it differently. But there's no sort of rigid, thou shalt think like this. Uh, But that's kind of a rough idea of how I tend to look at a lot of things. Hi, Patricia Flanagan, USAID Africa Bureau. Rick, uh, my question to you is, since you're looking from the historical perspective and your studies, as well as being in the State Department for a long time, how do you see the role of technology, ICT, communications changing that in terms of both from our side, data analytics, being able to actually get more real-time data, as well as data and technology for both the governments and the stakeholders in-country as well as maybe some nefarious groups, how do you see that working for and against us in terms of your modeling and your uh, negotiations and your policies? Well, it means the data comes quicker. Um, I think there actually is an issue of um, you don't want to be distracted by factoids. Um, You have a lot of factoids coming in, and you can be overwhelmed by that. It's like, you know, constantly answering your email or constantly looking at your telephone. Uh, Sometimes it makes sense to sort of um, sit back and digest the data you have. Uh, Digest the data, work on that. And uh, rather than constantly being um, concentrating on the new data, Uh, sometimes the new data is important. And what I mean by new data, I mean, uh, you know, it's okay to check it once a day, uh, if it's as as opposed to uh, every five minutes. Um, I think that sometimes you, if you focus too much on the data, you're, you're, uh, you're uh, distracted. Um, Does that answer? What's the question? Well, I think one of the things is something that used to be called the CNN effect. Is, um, you know, if a tree falls in the woods and nobody hears it, doesn't make a sound. And and I think that in the past there were a lot of trees that were falling in the woods that nobody was seeing. Central African Republic is a very good example. Um, I don't know the Central African Republic very well uh, at all. I've never been there. But um, I was following the LRA. And, um some years ago, the LRA wandered into the central African Republic, and um, I sort of was looking at it there, and I had no idea that the LRA was the least of the central African Republic's problems. That was really a mess. There were all kinds of groups, and the LRA was the least of them. Um, so I think um, I think that the the data makes the, the, the technology makes things apparent to us now that weren't apparent before. The CNN effect, what used to be called the CNN effect, means that um, we sort of feel an urge to do something about it. Um, I think the I, I think that since the CNN effect has come in, sometimes we've gotten a little tired of it. Uh, populations and governments, it's like. Uh, and sort of have a sense of our limitations of being able to actually do something positive. So there's a sort of exhaustion. So it, it, it's it's a thing that comes back and f- goes back and forth. Uh, I hope that answers the question. Do you have anything to
2: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the only thing I would add is that we've got tons and tons of information at this point. And a lot, I think one of the struggles for me personally in this job is... Uh, I'm not the only one that has access to all this information, and maybe at some point the Intel community was the one that you could maybe even say has the most access to information. Now we can get a, a policymaker, someone, you know, a regular citizen at, at a computer can get access to various types of social media data. The, One one that comes to mind is is ACLED. I don't know if anyone here is familiar with it, but it's an online database of sub-Saharan Africa, and I think Asia, all of the different uh, open source press, NGO, et cetera, et cetera, reports of conflict throughout the country. Um, And this is used a lot by policymakers who will come to me and say, you know, we're looking at all this violence in this area, there's tons of civilian casualties, and for me, my job is to help them understand what they're looking at and potentially some of the biases that are there or how there might be errors and flaws. NGOs have been using satellite imagery a lot in, in their reporting and sometimes it's uh, not done accurately um, or maybe it's a little bit more of an opaque nature than what they're able to bring to the analysis. and so. A lot of what I think we do is take this technology that's being used now that's accessible all, all over to the average day citizen and being able to make it informative and kind of draw out the opaqueness nature that it can have.
0: Being mindful of, of everyone's time, uh, we're, we're, we've come up on the hours. If, is there a final question someone would like to ask and then, okay.
1: Hi, Jordan Reyes, Hoover Institution. Uh, you said um, you use history to help uh, frame your thinking and looking at current situations or problems. Um, could you, um, this might actually
2: like be a personal question, but could you maybe give us a few of your like historical figures and whose uh, views of the world that you use to look at the current problems?
1: Well, what I mean by history, actually, um, I'm try to get at that question, but what I mean by history is, um, is gathering data and looking at the data and then making the, making your judgments, decisions based on all this data that you have without necessarily looking at models first. Look at the data and then come up with your model. Make up a model based on to, to fit the situation. So that's what I mean by the history part. And then sort of historical figures that... Uh, that uh, it would be influential in my thinking or well like world right down the street here uh bills uh, on a lot of his conflict resolution thinking um, um I think uh, I don't know Um, I don't really I'm not necessarily inspired by historical figures uh, if that's the right word Um, I mean I sort of you know there are certain presidents or world leaders of one sort or another that I like or respect or you know well they might be flawed in this way but they did this good thing um so I, I don't really, I, I haven't really been intellectually inspired, I don't think, by, by a world leader, uh, by a historical figure.